Hannah Brown. Chris McLeish, here we are, episode number 13. Lucky for some. Unlucky for some. As you can imagine, this is a very stressful number for me and my superstitionism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite, I didn't even think of doing an episode on the superstition surrounding the number 13. Oh. Until this you know very what? second. Oh, I was going to look up some fun facts for it, but time just got away from me and I forgot entirely. I'm not going to lie. Take it to the Instagram. I could take it to the Instagrams. Um, now that there's lots of exciting things going to be going up on the Instagrams, if Hannah remembers, which she will. She will. She will. Um, yeah. We need um, to keep that lovely Instagram aesthetic we've got going. So We do. Um, yeah. Exactly. Also, that's inadvertently becoming a superstition now as well, because it's all grouped in threes. But here we are. But I like that. That's I like that's that. fine. <laughs> that's fine. When you're planting plants, you're supposed to do groups of three and five. So threes are good. Threes are good. Okay, I'll I'll take I'll take your word for it. I've never actually asked you. Are you a particularly superstitious human? Yes. Are, okay, yes, I good. Have. Are yes. you saying hello to all the magpies and avoiding ladders and all that stuff? I do do that. I also avoid th drains in sets of three. Okay. <laughs> That's one. I used to avoid standing on cracks on pavements a lot. That was a superstition. Yep. I, yep. Theater superstitions. I'm a. I'm a believer in those. I'm also in a believer. I think because I like routine. Mm -hmm. There's an element of superstition surrounding why I like routine. So when I'm doing a show, I have certain pr things that I do. Yes. And. Although in a practical sense, it may seem like it's for some kind of beneficial reason, but it's actually now just become a superstition that I need to do it in order to perform at my best. Right. Okay. I get, I get your Par point. For example, I will always have a, I've got a secret potion that I will always drink on days that I've got <gasps> shows. That just, good for my voice. Oh, that just takes me straight back to the 2004 filming of Phantom of the Opera when Carlotta's throat spray gets poisoned. <laughs> yeah, no, luckily no one's done that to me. <laughs> no one's done that to me. Um, but I also like to do a walk around. If I have time, uh -huh. there's been a few occasions where I don't do this. I will walk through my track on the stage. So I will walk through an entire show. You're such a good um, company member. Thanks. I think it's when I'm doing shows that are particularly stressful, Fair. I will make sure that it happens just so that I know exactly where I need to be at all times. No, that's understandable, particularly if there's lots of words and lots of props and lots of things that you have to do. Mm -hmm, it's always mm -hmm. it's always nice just to keep it fresh in the front of your mind where you're going and when. The drinking of water becomes an almost superstitious practice. <laughs> I drink so much water when I'm doing shows, I'm surprised I haven't wet myself on stage. Oh, see, that just gives me, that just makes me so stressful. Just the thought of being halfway through a song and suddenly realising you need the bathroom and not, <laughs> not being able to leave the stage. Oh, Well, if God. you can imagine, Sweeney Todd, when Sweeney Todd doesn't go very far for very long. Yes. And I had, I think I had three bottles of water. I had one on each side of the wings God. and I had one backstage. Yeah. At the kind of directly behind the stage. Mm -hmm. And I would get through all three of them over the course of the show. <gasps> and I never wet myself once. Which is so impressive because you're effectively on stage for, I would say, about 95% of the show. <laughs> you don't yeah. leave often. No, not an God, awful lot. That's, um, that's terrifying. It's good fun. I have been known to not necessarily shout at people, but tell people off if they're whistling. 
in the theaters or oh, yeah. mm-hmm. doing anything like that because I do I, I uh, well I believe in ghosts and the last thing I want is a wee ghosty dropping something on my head because it thinks that the whistle is a cue. No, this is true. That is a fair superstition to believe in. Yeah. For um, safety more than anything For else. safety. I also get vaguely nauseous whenever people are cleaning mirrors. Not necessarily in work, just anywhere. Because if that mirror smashes, I will have to go and bury the pieces in the garden. <laughs> 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 well, I am that person. But fair enough. Magpies, if I see one, I will always hunt for another. Yes, me too. I, yep. Yeah. I've been known to stop conversations to say hello to Mr. Magpies. It's bad. My mum's friend goes, good morning, good morning, good morning to them and gives them a little salute. I like that one. That's a, that's a good one. Don't put new shoes on a table. Don't put new shoes on a table. That one too. Uh, but I Don't think put old shoes on a table. It's not hygienic. It's not hygienic. Nobody wants that. No. But I think I get a lot of my superstition from my grandmother because my... My mother is vaguely superstitious about some things, but my gran was like devoutly superstitious. And my mom told mm. me about a lot of her superstitions, particularly the ones about pictures falling over and mirrors falling off walls or pictures falling off walls. And I've just kind of like assimilated all of them as well. <laughs> all of them as well. Does that symbolize something? I don't know if I've heard that one. Yeah. So, oh God. Apparently, if a picture falls over of its own, own accord and or a picture or a mirror falls off the wall and the nail's still on the wall, it allegedly signifies a death. <laughs> so it's not one you want to have to happen to you, but it freaks me out something often whenever the cat knocks over a picture and I was like, who did that? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, that? <laughs> but that's not of its own accord. The cat def- the cat, the cat yeah, was to exactly. blame. So, yes, I'm a big, stupid, superstitious human. Fair basically. enough. Fair enough. Thanks. I'm pleased that you, you, you like, are okay with that. Superstitions, I think, were created by people back in the day to protect themselves in some way, shape or form. So it's just a... It's, it's just, you've taken what people created to protect you in the past. Thanks. You know I mean? So you're, you're <laughs> being respectful to those who were trying to protect themselves. Clever times. Thank clever, clever times. So <laughs> I have them to thank for having to say hello to all of the magpies. And to be fair as well, I'm a little cuckoo and I love an animal. So I will acknowledge an animal. Rego- it doesn't have to be a magpie. It can be anything. Oh. I say hello to pigeons. If I see a squirrel, I will have to say, oh, look, there's a squirrel. Um, oh my god right the squirrel thing yes yeah every time every time i can't walk i can't just have a squirrel in the background the squirrel has to be acknowledged and appreciated ever since i saw the sword and the stone the disney film where the sad little lady squirrel gets rejected by arthur and so i know i just think of squirrels as little sad lonely creatures that are just desperate for a love something something to love so i give them that love by going hi Look at the Scottish flag behind me. Well, as in like the window? Yeah. The window. I did my, see that. My camera's squint, so it's made it look like a flat, like a bit of a flat it, shape. Yeah. Wild. I enjoy that. And anyway. it has relevance to my story today, so that's exciting. Ooh. So tell me about your week. Uh, so this week, what have I been doing this week? 
So it's now been announced that there are some of us putting together a concert, as you know. That is very true, yes. So final little details are being slotted into place for this concert, which will be available in February. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a selfless plug. Nope. Shameless? This is a shameless plug. Um, On Facebook, we are called A Little Company and we have an event raising money for Acting for Others, which is a charity that supports actors and other people in the creative industries in times of need. And I think we are currently in the midst of a time of need. So uh, we are raising money for that charity. And um, yeah, if you go to a little company on Facebook, there's loads of details there coming up to tell you how to see things and how to donate things. Um, But yeah, that's I've been working on that a lot this week. I've been making lots of new vegan food, which was very exciting. Yes, continuing with Veganuary. Continuing with Veganuary and considering, really seriously considering just keeping it going for as long as I can because... I have genuinely, I was always something I was like, oh, because I like chocolate (laughs) and I like dairy. I like cheese and I like milk. And that was the, that was what I was, I thought I'm going to really struggle with that. But actually, it's not that bad. That's largely been it, I think, because we're still in a lockdown it's the little things. Things will change eventually. Exactly. exactly. It's the little things that we need to occupy ourselves with. Well, we've, we have been going for lots of frosty walks, but frosty we go for a walks. walk in the evening so that we don't Aww. encounter as many people. Um, and we've been going around all the posh big houses that are nearby. <gasps> and we'd be looking in the windows. So I was in the vicinity of your home. Now that sounds creepy, but what I mean is I was in the park down the road from you. <laughs> and... Some of those big houses that you're talking about were for sale, and I did have a wee sneaky, sneaky look at some of them. We were talking about it, but then as soon as we got in, we forgot. Um, <laughs> so you've just reminded me. Um, the other thing that I have been doing is I have been working on a crochet, another crochet project. We all know I love a bit of crochet because I'm an old woman. Um, but take a look at this. Oh my god! <laughs> look at her. It's a crochet Elsa. Isn't she cute? Oh my god, she is adorable. You should sell those. I mean, it took a very long time, <laughs> but yeah, I might think about it because it was it was I mean, it's simple. It's a really simple pattern. That's but, um, so good. It came with little like my phobia. You know my phobia. Oh, your phobia, yes. That's what the eyes were meant to be. Oh, so I have a No. No, 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 no. She looked like a demon. So I I they came with the set that I got with that came with the wool for this and the pattern. And um, I was like, Mum, don't want them. Can you go in the box and can you remove them? So she did. Okay, good. And so instead, I have a felting kit. So I did felting for her eyes. It and her looks mouth. amazing. Um, and it's just like a little needle that you poke like mad on bits yeah, of felt. To, right, to give people a little bit of context without saying the word, okay? But I'll put it this way. If you kept what her eyes should have been would have been a little bit coralliney and we don't want that yep we don't want that we don't want that that is my phobia yes in life exactly um but she looks much happier with her lovely felt eyes she looks less possessed she'll go on the instagram i think i'll keep i'll put her on the instagram for everyone we love her she is so cute i'm very proud of her well done um thank you anywho shall we delve into 
the the thing that stresses me out and i can never think of an answer <laughs> we yeah, yes let's just do that I, I just want to say a quick thank you to all the people who submitted questions this week it's super yes. exciting and there's some excellent questions in there so yes we might have depending on what i pick out we might have to sit and think for a while because some of them are very good um, okay. so what i was you just going worried. to say in a, no, no, I was just going to say in addition, if you, if anybody else out there has questions, send them in to us. But also, do. don't forget, you can tell us your answers to the questions too on the, in the Instagrams and the Facebooks. Just give us a comment what your response to the question would be. It gives exactly. us something to, gives us food for thought. It does give us food for thought. We do, we do like that. We do like that. Yeah. So Chris, I'm going to put my hand in the hat and you tell me when to, what you tell me when to stop. Oh, okay. 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 Stop. I've got one. God knows what it's going to be. Oh, gosh. Oh, oh gosh. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. It's going to be hard. I don't think it's going to be hard. It's just going to take a bit of thinking. So, if you could meet one person from Scottish history, who would it be and what would you ask? Ooh. Okay. Hmm. I think there's a lot of people, but see, in terms of talking about stories that we've spoken about, I'd quite like to talk to Madeline Smith and just ask her, did you do it? That's a very good point. <laughs> that's a very good point. Just get a definitive answer. <laughs> we just give her a truth drug. And We'd see what also happens. like to say to Old Fleming, did you do it? Mm-hmm, that's another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just bring back all the dead murderers that we've got that we've spoken about. Exactly. And just ask, was it you? Was it you though? I actually feel I don't know what I would ask, but I, I think I would maybe want to meet J.M. Barry. Oh, that's a good question. Good yeah. answer. Yeah. Because well, I love Peter Pan. I have a little bit of the Peter Pan syndrome as well, where I just don't want to be a grown up. I, I mean, um, come on. Being a grown up sucks big time. It does. It really does. <laughs> also, I always really wanted to fly. Um, so, and I have an old poster, a Peter Pan poster from when it was done at the theatre back in the day when it was first written oh. that my mum and my sister got me it's not a real it's not real but it's like a print mm-hmm. of it and um i love it it's going to go up in the bathroom i think and, excellent um i'm still trying to think of a person that we've not already had featured on the podcast actually it is quite hard i i'm kind of i'm not going to weasel my way out of this question but i feel like my question is going to be answered by my story so I can do a two in one when we get to my story. But in terms oh, of GM ba- in terms of GM Barry, I'd be quite intrigued to ask what his inspirations for Peter Pan were. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be quite interesting. Because we know it's something to do with those kids whose surname I've forgotten, even though it's quite a famous surname. And it's a double barreled one. Hmm. What are those what was that family called? Llewellyn Bowen. <laughs> Oh, I can't remember their name. Right, I'm going to have to Google their names. Give me a minute. So, if you've ever, have you ever seen, um, what do you call it? Finding Neverland. I have. You have? So, mm-hmm. one of his inspirations was apparently the children of the Llewellyn Davies family. I did say Llewellyn. Yeah, so you got, yeah, I knew it was a double barreled name and that was one of them. I couldn't remember the last one. <laughs> the last name. I think it'd be quite interesting to ask about whether that was his inspiration or what was it about those children that gave him the inspiration about the whole not growing up thing? I would ask, oh, oh, I've got it, okay. You've got it. I've, 
I've often heard about what his inspiration uh, uh, to do with the Lost Boys were. Oh, okay. Uh, I would probably like to break down Peter Pan into its elements and ask what the inspiration mm-hmm. behind each different element was. But the Lost Boys, oh. I'm sure he had a little brother that died. Ah. And so the Lost Boys were supposed to be a representation of children who had died. Oh, okay. Now that may just be rumour mill, but then there could be truth in it. And I would like to know more about that from the horse's mouth. But then also, just asking where did he get the idea for Tinkerbell? Where did he get the Mm -hmm. idea for all those different bits? Because I love the film so much. Is there a person that he grew up with that was his hook Mm -hmm. in life? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. The answers may be out there if I just Googled it, but it would be much more interesting to sit down for a cup of tea and talk about it. Although I don't it think would tea. be much more interesting. And also, I think it would be, I think it would also be interesting to just say to him, did you think that this play that you wrote for these kids would have such a profound effect all the way down yeah. the line in history still? Because it's still extremely famous and still adapted today. Mm-hmm. And is still seen by, be it the Disney film or the one that was done in the 2000s. So you're saying J.M. Barry, and yes. I will give you my answer once we get to my story. Because there is somebody in my story that I really want to, would like to grill. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm intrigued. Woo! I am... Um... I well, shall I fire into my story then? Shall we go into your story? Yes, because you are first. It. I am first. I have already been telling Hannah Banan that I had a particular story that I would like to have talked about today. It's quite a short story, but it is one that I have loved for a very, very long time. But then I, I managed to branch off from that story into a location that is related to that story. And so I've decided to just cover that location in general because it's got Fantastic. some really fascinating stories. So I'm going to talk to you today about Edinburgh's Greyfriars Kirk. Oh my god, okay. I'm going to just shut up for the next 45 minutes now. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, there's lots to talk about. Oh my god, I'm so excited. So, let's crack on. Greyfriars Kirk was built on the site of a pre-Reformation Franciscan monastery. It's a monastery where the friars wore grey robes, hence Greyfriars Kirk. That's the name. This is going to sound so stupid, right? Never knew that that was the reason yeah, why. Neither did so I. I have learned something new already. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> um, for any non-Scots, a kirk is the word used primarily by the Church of Scotland, which means church. So a kirk is a church. It is located at the southern edge of the old town, adjacent to George Heriot's school. Burials have taken place since the late 16th century, and a number of notable Edinburgh residents are interred at Greyfriars. Following the Scottish Reformation of 1560, the grounds of the Franciscan Monastery passed into possession to Mary, Queen of Scots. She subsequently granted it to the town council for use as a burial ground, and later bordered by the famous Flodden Wall. Mm. I mean, don't know why it's famous, it's just a wall. Don't know what its achievements are. (laughs) Keeping the bones inside, that's what it probably does. Exactly. By the end of the 16th century, a new church was needed for the southwest parish of the city and building work began on Greyfriars in 1602. Greyfriars was to be the first post-Reformation church built in Edinburgh. However, progress was slow. 
and the new church did not open until Christmas Day 1620. Just a couple of years ago. Christmas Day again? I know, Christmas Day pops up a lot. Everything they love Christmas. Christmas Day. That would be one heck of a midnight mass. <laughs> Cutting the ribbon. Love it. Woo! By 1722, a second church called New Greyfriars had been built next door, and the two churches were eventually joined together in the 1930s. The current church is rectangular in plan, consisting of a single nave of eight bays with aisles along the whole length of the church on either side. The church's architectural style can be described as survival gothic, which is gothic architecture that continued after the Reformation and it's fused with Baroque. So it's a kind of baroque gothy building. And it's That's like a nice mix. Survival Gothic. I hadn't heard of that before. Enclosed burial layers are found mainly on the south edge of the graveyard. These either have solid stone walls or iron railings and were created as a deterrent to rape robbing. Nope, grave robbing, which had become a problem in the 18th century. As we know, we've heard all about grave robbers in the past, and there are two indeed. very famous ones we will probably cover at some stage. Definitely. Yes. Greyfriars also has two low ironwork cages, which are called mort safes. Safes? Mort safes. safes. <laughs> the E isn't, isn't pronounced as a single syllable. Mort safes. Yes. These were rented out and protected bodies for long enough to deter the attentions of the early 19th century resurrection men who supplied Edinburgh Medical School with corpses for dissection. And they're actually quite... You probably have seen them. Um, I didn't know that they had a name, uh, but they are essentially like upside-down iron baskets, and they're quite eerie-looking, but, I mean, they did the job, I'm sure. There's also a few surviving ones at um, the Necropolis, which aren't as visible anymore in the old um, cathedral burial ground but there's also a plenty at Ramshorn Cemetery which will be featured on this week's We Love a Link Wednesday Instagram so thank you for that extra link (laughs) not a problem keep your eyes peeled Uh, excellent now let's talk a little bit about the Covenanters they sound dodgy they sound very dodgy. It's quite a it's quite an aggressive word, actually. It does, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The Kirkyard was involved in the history of the Covenanters, the members of a 17th century Scottish religious and political movement who supported a Presbyterian Church of Scotland. The movement came about after Charles I attempted to impose his rule on the Scottish Kirk, but the Scots were having none of it. They were like, get to France. Classic Scots. Yes, they believed that only Jesus could be the head of their church, so they refused. The Covenanters were determined to preserve Presbyterianism and a rather nasty and complex era of Scottish history ensued. The Covenanting movement began with the signing of the National Covenant in Greyfriars Kirk. It was at the time a place of legal free public assembly, So on 28th of February, 1638, they all met there to sign the National Covenant. Fantastic times. Yeah, what a time. What a time. A man named Sir George Mackenzie was charged with dealing with the Covenanters, which he did with a brutish relish, leading to his nickname, 
Bloody Mackenzie. I mean, that definitely sounds like someone saying that because they're annoyed with them. Yeah, bloody Mackenzie. Doesn't know, it? No, bloody, yeah. bloody as in <laughs> blood. Yeah, literal blood. Literal blood. Following the Battle of Bothwell Bridge on the 22nd of June 1679, some 1,200 prisoners were brought to Edinburgh. There was too many of them to be contained in prison or in the castle, so therefore a makeshift prison was formed in the field south of Greyfriar Kirkyard. This is regarded as the world's first concentration camp. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh. Some were hanged, some were beheaded, and their skulls were displayed on walls around the city. Others were tortured publicly while a thousand were dispersed among other prisons or allowed to go free. They were fed very little. They succumbed to disease and left to suffer in the open during the winter. Escape was difficult and only those who signed a document renouncing Presbyterianism were released. But most died and were buried where they lay. Oh, that's that's bad. That's now. I did a ghost tour in Greyfriars Kirkyard once and I'm sure that they told us about this and it used to be that the church was kind of on top of a little bit of a mound mm-hmm. but the it's now relatively even it's not completely even but it's relatively mm-hmm. even all the grassland but the person in the ghost tour said that that was because of the number of bodies <gasps> that there's so many bodies buried in the kirkyard uh, just randomly, not even marked graves, that oh they actually God. boosted the ground and the ground is only raised because there's so many bodies underneath. Oh, those poor people. Oh my yeah. God. And I'm sure that they said that in particularly rainy years, there have been bodies that have risen to the top. <coughs> now, oh. this could just be ghost tour chat. You know how ghost tours are. They love to just embellish. But perhaps it's true. There could be some truth in it. That's one hell of a lie to tell a tour group otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, rude if it was not true. Exactly. Because I've believed it for years. Yeah. Edinburgh's a creepy place. I'm putting money on that that's happened. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't put it past Edinburgh. (laughs) Exactly, there we go. Other prisoners were sent overseas as slaves, but their ship went down in a storm, leading to their deaths also. Oh, for God's sake. (laughs) Yeah, no rest for the Covenanters. Nope. The, well, yes, rest. Plenty of rest because they're all dead. True. <laughs> Quite a definite rest, but yes, yeah, it's rest very rest. They're very rested. <laughs> the fact that the years between 1680 to 1688 were refer- are now referred to as the killing times in Covenanter history speaks volumes of how Mackenzie handled the issue. He himself died in 1691 in Westminster and was laid to rest in a grand mausoleum. Ironically, yards away from the Covenanter's prison in Greyfriars Kirkyard. Oh. Yeah. It's a bit What rude. a guy. What a guy. But let me tell you, <gasps> his legacy went on to form part of Edinburgh's ghost lore. His coffin was said to move about by itself, driven to despair of being buried next to the Covenanter's prison, and generations of gallus wee Edinburgh schoolboys were dared to go up to the door of the mausoleum and utter the rhyme, Bloody Mackenzie, come out if you door, draw the snake and lift the bar. Eesh. Yep. I feel like someone buried him there just to screw him over one last time. Yeah, get it up, <laughs> you Mackenzie. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely Eesh. someone was having a laugh there. Absolutely. 
Uh, he had it coming, to be honest. He did. Tales of the poltergeist activity within Greyfriars mm-hmm. Kirkyard. Uh, it's, it's always been quite uh, closely associated with Sir George Mackenzie. Uh, it has been well documented, but in 2004, another gory twist to the man's tale occurred when some teenagers broke into the mausoleum, cracked open his coffin and stole Mackenzie's head. I'm sorry, they did what now? <laughs> they stole Mackenzie's head. In 2004? In 2004. Not that That's, long ago. I can remember that happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, a tour group, luckily, were walking through <sighs> Greyfriars Kirkyard at the time and they were going there to see, um, to pay visit to the Mackenzie poltergeist, but they managed to catch the boys in the act. Luckily, his head was found and restored and the poltergeist keeps on haunting. I read in one article that they were found with the head and they were playing football with it. Oh my God. (laughs) Which, I mean, you know I don't like football, but that's one way to make it slightly more interesting. (laughs) Exactly. Do you know what that makes me think of? (laughs) Hashtag ghosts reference. See the episode in the second season when they're playing volleyball. (laughs) Yeah, and you're using his head. I love that. That tour group definitely got their money's worth that day. Absolutely. A lot of the tours are done with, uh, it's a donation basis, but that would have got loads of donations i reckon um okay in december of 1998 a homeless man wandered through edinburgh's storm-lashed streets seeking shelter from the night's downpour as he staggered into greyfriars kirkyard and he decided that the place to go was Mackenzie's tomb oh yep. that's an interesting decision yes but it has an intact roof so they think that perhaps oh, the fair. intact roof lured him in it, the tomb is now known as the Black Mausoleum, and it makes sense because it is pretty black. Fair. Yep. Inside, the vault was pitch black, and the desperate man decided to enter with the little, with any little light that he possessed. He removed an iron gate in the floor and descended a short, twisting stone staircase and entered a second chamber. There, he came across four wooden coffins. Perhaps looking for valuables to steal, the man began to smash open the dusty caskets. As he did so, a hole suddenly opened beneath his feet and he fell through a wooden division into a third chamber, the existence of which had been previously unknown. The man landed in a deep pit that had been used to illegally dump those who had died from the plague. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. Despite being hundreds of years old, the pit had been so well sealed that the corpses remained pretty plump. Oh, (laughs) that's an image. Oh, yes. (laughs) Semi-putrefied, putrefied, why can I not say that word? Semi-putrefied and covered in green slime, the rotten corpses had sunken features, ragged clothing, matted hair, and smelled like death. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine them smelling like roses, so fair enough. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, the man desperately fled the tomb, not stopping even when he cut his head on the tomb's entrance in his reckless flight. <gasps> A nearby security guard and his dog had heard the strange noises coming from the Covenanter's prison area and were in the process of exploring the graveyard when they saw the wailing man running in their direction. 
The sight of a bloody, filthy, bedraggled man charging out of a crypt in the middle of a stormy night was too much for the guard, and both men fled separately. <laughs> the security guard turned up for work the next day, oh, told everyone of his previous night, and handed in his notice and quit the job, which, not surprised. I mean, friend. fair enough. Fair. Oh, yes. Phenomena of the Black Mausoleum stands out against that experienced... Phenomena at the Black Mausoleum stands out against that experienced at many other purportedly haunted locations in that it has been startlingly frequent in its occurrence, often severe and well documented. Since 1998, there have been 450 attacks and that is just the attacks that have been reported. Amongst the 450, some 180 people have lost consciousness Inexplicable, oh wow! Wow, Ine- that was a good one. <laughs> Inexplicable <laughs> fires have broken out. Weird cold spots have been felt everywhere, and an unusually high number of dead wildlife have been found in the vaults' immediate vicinity. Ooh! People have had fingers broken, hair pulled, and felt as though something has punched or kicked them. Unexplained bruises, scratches and burns, skin gouges, nausea and numbness have all been reported. Cameras and other electrical equipment malfunction in the area of the mausoleum. And intriguingly, the physical signs of attack sometimes go unnoticed until people get home. And it's when they get home that they find their wounds. Some of the scratches and burns disappear as quickly as they emerge, while others may last for months. And few have been left with actual scars. Okay, I would just like to very quickly point out that a few episodes ago, I made the point that people always mistake poltergeists as being like happy, jolly little ghosts that like chucking books about. Uh uh-uh, uh, uh uh. No, no, no. What you have just They're described. They're pretty vicious. That is a poltergeist. They be Absolutely. a vicious ghost. Yes. They don't. They're not scared of frightening people with actual injury. Exactly. And anything oh, no. that can do that to you ain't a happy jolly ghost. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, George uh, Mackenzie sounded like a piece of work in life and seems to remain a piece of work in death. It, it, it would seem that way. Can I also ask another question? Absolutely. How the hell did people keep getting into this mausoleum? <laughs> so, I don't think I included it in this, but the, the whole area of the prison was prone to vandalism. And so they ended up making it inaccessible to the public in, ooh, I can't remember what year. Ghost tour people managed to get very specific permission to be allowed access to that area to take people to the mausoleum, Mm -hmm. but it's not accessible by the public anymore. Right, okay, that makes sense. Unless you're on a ghost tour. Yeah, okay. So don't worry about it. So you actually have to make the choice to get there. Yeah, that's fair enough. Because I just like, I was like, people keep getting into this mausoleum and they don't seem to be doing anything to stop it. (laughs) No, not at all. Furthermore, many of the frightening experiences don't end when the tour finishes. Oh, great. People have, yeah. People have reported that some of the phenomena listed above, act listed above, listed, I mean, when you're reading this, it's listed above, listed in your, from what your ears heard a minute ago. Yeah. They actually follows them home. Oh, lovely. Yeah. What Strange occurrences. 
happen in homes and and uh, hotels after people have left the tours. Things like light bulbs blowing, electrical appliances switching on and off themselves. There was one story of a guy who had marks on his neck after being at the tour. And he then phoned his mum later and his mum then developed the same marks, the exact same marks on her neck. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. So it's very fascinating. Definitely worth a read. If you want to know more about Bloody Mackenzie or his mausoleum, give it a Google because it is fascinating. Also, if you, go on. that, if you go on that tour, maybe take a set of rosary beads and a wee casket of holy water with you. Just saying. I think the tour is called Curse of the Dead Tour. I could be wrong. Uh-huh. Edinburgh, you should be paying us. We're giving you free... Um, exactly. <laughs> shout-outs free, here. <laughs> uh, shout-outs. Okay, so next. I don't next. want to dwell on this for too long because... We all know that J.K. Rowling is a bit of a... She's she's not she, the best she ha- person. She has said some questionable things or she's tried to make points, but perhaps has not gone the best way about making said points. Absolutely. And I do live in hope that she will eventually realise what she, what she is saying. Exactly. And what is wrong about what she is saying and actually learn and grow as a human yes, being. Yes, it's all about then, discussion. That's what yes. it's all about. And then perhaps we can start to enjoy some of her works again without yeah. feeling a little bit guilty. But yeah, anyways, it has for those people, it, slightly. <laughs> it has indeed. I love Harry Potter and it makes me sad that in supporting Harry Potter, we are supporting a big old turf. Um, <laughs> if you don't know what turf is, give it a Google. Um, so I will talk a little bit about Harry Potter. So it's quite known that the elephant house is the is named the birthplace of Harry Potter Indeed. because it is where um, J.K. sat and wrote some of Harry Potter. Exactly. In the area surrounding, there are other things that link to Harry Potter, which is what I'm just about to tell you. So, lots and lots of Harry Potter fans descend on the Kirkyard of Greyfriars mm-hmm. every single year because there are some notable characters from the books that make a little bit of an appearance in the graveyard. If you look at the gravestones very closely, you will find a McGonagall, you'll find a Moody, a Black, a Scrim... So I didn't know how to pronounce this one. Scrimminger. 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 So there's there's one that is almost like Scrimminger, Scrimminger, but it's spelt slightly differently. That was noted in the article I made as well. I think it's Scrimminger. Scrimger, yes. I think, is the version we have. Yes. There's a Crookshanks. Excellent. We do love that cat. And there's also a Tom Riddle, the big bad man himself. Exactly. Now, fun fact for you here. It's not necessarily a fun fact, but the oh, the last time I was in Edinburgh was like two years ago or something. And myself and my friend got lost in the old town, as we often do, because we don't know our way around Edinburgh. And we happened across the... Kirkyard, and inadvertently found the grave of Thomas Riddle, which um, she was very excited about because she's a big Harry Potter fan. And we were turning the corner to leave, and descending upon the Kirkyard was a tour group, clearly doing like a Harry Potter walking tour, but like kitted out and like the full. Everybody <laughs> on that tour was like in the full costume, and I kind of I was it was impressive. But also, I was also very, very confused because we hadn't found the 
the gravestone by that point. So I was like, why are all these people here dressed like they're going to Hogwarts? Then we found Tom Riddle's grave and we're like, aha, like, I aha. get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, the, there's other things. There's, there's a theory that the name Potter actually came from either a gravestone in the grave, uh, Kirk, mm-hmm. uh, Greyfriars Kirkyard, but it's also rumoured that it's because of Potter Row, which is also just around the corner by the ah. university buildings. So it's not clear as to where Potter yeah. came from, but it could be either or. The McGonagall, William McGonagall, McGonagall is the grave of the, a man who is considered the worst poet in history. Oh. Poor thing. Poor thing. What a title. Yeah, so if you see William McGonagall's grave... Go and give him a wee bunch of flowers or something. Leave something for yeah, him. Yeah, because that's, that's a horrible rude. title to be given, the worst <laughs> poet in history. The other last Harry Potter-based thing is that if you are in the graveyard and you look over a particular wall, you will see the turret of George Heriot's school, which was built in 1628. And many believe that this building was the inspiration for Hogwarts. Glasgow University looks more like it, though. Yeah, but also, um, yeah, you're right. It does. (laughs) But I think J.K. Rowling, she's an Edinburgh born and bred. She is an Edinburgh born and bred, but Glasgow it just looks like it. Let's be honest, that's why everybody wants to go to Glasgow. It's because you get some fantastic photos in the cloisters and in the quadrangles. Just saying. It's a well, great fair place. Play, fair you play. get some excellent graduation photos. Just, I speak from experience. <laughs> <laughs> I have a graduation photo of me pretending to be a wizard in my gown. Oh. Oh my god i think you should and get one of those academic gowns and just wear them all the time if anyone's gonna I'd rock it you are let's Thank be honest here <laughs> the fashion icon that is chris mcleish because you've got the high you've got the presence yeah well you know me uh there's also a photo of me trying to put it over my head like a hood the gown on my head <laughs> like a hood and two of my other pals were doing the same thing at the same time but mine went over my head so there's a photo of them looking really cool and me being like this Oh my god, I love that. Classic. That's so good. Okay, we are now approaching the actual story that started off this whole (gasps) episode for me. So this is the story that I I had in mind when I started researching for this week. This is very exciting. It is the story. Well, in fact, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to crack on with (gasps) it and you'll find out. So in 1850, a gardener called John Gray, together with his wife Jess and his son John, because there wasn't enough names to go around in those days, yet to share, uh, they arrived in Edinburgh. Unable to find work as a gardener, he avoided the workhouse by joining the Edinburgh Police Force as a night watchman. To keep him company through the long winter nights, John took on a partner in the form of a sky terrier called Bobby. Oh God, I know where this is going. (laughs) I love this story. John and Bobby became a familiar sight trudging through the old cobbled streets of Edinburgh. Through thick and thin, winter and summer, they were faithful friends. The years on the streets unfortunately took their toll on John and he was treated eventually by the police surgeon for tuberculosis. John eventually succumbed to the disease on the 15th of February, 1858 and was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard. Bobby was then seen by locals in the Kirkyard when he refused to leave his master's grave, even in the worst weather conditions. 
The gardener and keeper of Greyfriars tried on many, many occasions to evict Bobby from the graveyard, but in the end he gave up and provided shelter for Bobby by placing a sack, a couple of sacks, underneath two table stones at the side of John Gray's gay rave. <laughs> John Gray's grave. Gone tree. John Gray's grave. Got it. <laughs> Got it in one. Oh, Bobby's fame spread throughout Edinburgh and it's reported that almost on a daily basis the crowds would gather at the entrance of, Kirk- of the Kirkyard waiting for the one o'clock gun that would signal the appearance of Bobby leaving the grave for his midday meal. Bobby would follow William Doe, a local joiner and cabinet maker, to the same coffee house that he had frequented with his now dead master where he would then be given a meal. In 1867, a new bylaw was passed that required all dogs to be licensed in the city or they would be destroyed. I hate the use of the word destroyed. It's awful, isn't it? It's barbaric. Awful. Sir William William Chambers, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, decided to pay Bobby's license and presented him with a collar with a brass inscription saying... Greyfriars Bobby from the Lord Provost 1867 licensed. So this can be seen at the Museum of Edinburgh, which is somewhere I love. I love the Museum in Edinburgh. I have never been. Add it to the I'm list. A member. <laughs> Ooh, I'm a member. Get you. Yeah, I get into the, the fancy exhibitions. <gasps> well, I did when the world wasn't ending. Yeah. <laughs> the kind folk of Edinburgh took good care of Bobby, but still he remained loyal to his master. For 14 years, the dead man's faithful dog kept constant watch and guard over the grave until his own death in 1872. Oh, God. Yeah. Baroness Angelia Georgina Barrett Coutts, president of the Ladies' Committee of the RSPCA, was so deeply moved by his story that she asked the city council for permission to erect a granite fountain with a statue of Bobby placed on top, which can be seen on George Fourth Bridge, mm-hmm. opposite Nando's. William Brodie sculpted the statue and it was unveiled without ceremony in November 1873, opposite Greyfriars Kirkyard. And it is with that that Scotland's capital city will always remember its most famous and faithful dog. Oh. Yeah. And then eventually a red granite monument was erected close to Bobby's grave by the Dog Aid Society of Scotland and unveiled by the Duke of Gloucester on the 13th of May, 1981. And that's just as you go into Greyfriars. Um, okay. Kind of the main entrance mm-hmm. from George Fourth Bridge at the top of Candlemaker Row. Since around 2000, the year 2000, this has been treated like a shrine with sticks for Bobby to fetch frequently left (laughs) and occasionally dog toys and flowers. The monument reads, Greyfriars Bobby died 14th of January, 1872, aged 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. Oh God. And that's the story of Greyfriars Bobby. Oh my God. And that's the whole reason I talked about the the church. Oh, it's such a good story story though so oh my cute. god although just the thought of that wee dog sitting alone at that grave just breaks my heart it's so sad i remember being told that story first when i was really young and i've just always loved it i think it's so sweet to think about a wee dog yeah just sitting. there's been movies made about it there's oh. been oh, it's so good 
The one thing I will say, okay, just on the, I love Greyfriars Bobby, and I have loved the statue since I was just a Wayne, but, but for some reason in the past maybe six or seven years, someone came up with the terrible idea that touching Bobby's nose is good luck, and so people now come to Edinburgh to touch Bobby's nose, and it's now discoloured. Yeah, although. That's an excellent point for our superstition episode. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, true. Since it's because people, yes, because I was aware of that, that people believe that they, if you rub um, Greyfire Bobby's nose, it will bring you good luck. But his nose has now turned gold because all the, <laughs> the black material has come off. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I don't good. think he started off that colour. I maybe, no, he maybe don't think he started off a kind of goldy colour. But no, I think it's, it's kind of ruined his face a little bit. And the old pictures of Bobby are so cute and now yeah. he looks awful he looks like he's got mange because his face has been turned gold <laughs> if you're look, if you're a tourist and you come to edinburgh don't touch bobby's nose if you're looking for good luck go to the other end of george fourth bridge you'll find the courts there's a statue of a man in a robe sitting on a big chair outside the courts and it is actually good luck to rub his toe so go and rub his toe instead you'll appreciate it I'm very, very passionate about this. Bobby's nose needs to be returned to its former glory. And I hate that it's been discoloured. Uh, hashtag anyway, save Bobby's nose. Save Bobby's nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing I want to achieve in 2021. Maybe this pandemic will have saved Bobby's nose. Maybe. Maybe he might get a little repaint since there's nobody about to go and see him. If you want to go and see Bobby, leave him a wee stick or leave him a wee dog toy. I'm sure he'll appreciate that at night when he's running about. I'm sure he will. I'm sure he will be thankful yeah. of that. And maybe Bobby will train him up so that he can go and bark at Bloody Mackenzie. Hey, that's a good, that's a good idea. Down. Oh. So we are going to team up with Bobby. Mm-hmm. It's going to be our first collaboration in this podcast. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if our first collaboration's with a ghost dog, I'd be more than happy. I mean, it's quite a good start. I agree. Quite a good start. And also, I love terriers, Scottish terriers. Really cute. I just love them. But as much as that's such a... I think it's such a lovely story because it does show the loyalty of animals and why we should save our animals and love our yeah and love our animals and love our pets and that's why we must save and rescue animals right so my coffee has hit so this is going to be an interesting (laughs) telling of this story so apologies if it's hectic do you want me to just kick off cry nope fire away that's what I meant to say (laughs) cry (laughs) oh god so one of the things that we have often spoken about on this podcast is that we as a nation are terrible at knowing our own history. Uh, It's not taught in our schools at any great length, uh, which is bad because one, as so my story this week is about a major event in Scottish history that was very violent, ended in a lot of death, but (sighs) has since passed kind of into a mythical state. So, this week, I'm going to do a little bit of myth-busting on this story and give you a little bit of, like... Obviously, right, 
when I re- was reading about this, this is the first time I've looked in depth at this story. And I found it super, super fascinating, particularly about how the two parties involved kind of like their their sort of battle plans and stuff like that. But I didn't have enough time on this podcast to go in depth on that. So I highly recommend that you if you read up about this subject because there was lots of things I didn't know about it. So, Chris McLeish, this week I am doing the bloody Battle of Culloden and the death of the Scottish clans. Yes. Yes. So, funnily enough, a part of Scottish history that isn't often actually dramatised, shall we say. Okay. Or really spoken about. The most major depiction of Culloden is actually an Outlander. Well done, Outlander. Well done, Outlander. So I did, I'm not going to lie, I did watch the last like four episodes of season two of Outlander to prepare me <laughs> as part of my research because that TV programme was to an extent um, based on sort of historical happenings, albeit in a slightly more, um, what's the word, Fan- sort of fantasy-based season. But I am. I have read that there was historical advisors on it. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a wee bit of background, a wee bit of context, because context is always key. Yeah. With with things like this. Um. So this is all. I'm going to have to do all the boring bit before I actually get to talk about <laughs> what happened at Culloden. <laughs> so please bear with me, because it's important to know why it happened. So, Jacobitism was the movement that supported the restoration of the Stuarts to the throne. The Stuarts line included Mary Queen of Scots and James VI, I believe the man that liked going around prodding witches. Yes, he loved it. He loved a bit of witch prodding. No better way to spend a weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. So, your first fun fact... The name Jacobite comes from the word Jacobus, which is the Latin equivalent of James. Oh. Which I didn't... I couldn't have told you that. Exactly. Yeah. Me neither. I didn't know. Everyone knows who the Jacobites were, but I had no idea where that word had come from because it's such an unusual word. So there you go. It basically just means James. They were the James okay. army. So, the beginning of the Jacobite movement dates back to 1685, where after the death of Charles II, every time I say that, I immediately think of horrible histories, and I'm trying trying not to think about it. Um, So, after the death of Charles II, his brother James II took to the throne. However, James II had converted to Catholicism, and the English Parliament would not allow him to rule over a Protestant England. He was replaced by his Protestant daughter, Mary. James II, having fled to France, still held a claim to the throne until his death in 1701. Those that supported his claim became known as Jacobites. In 1715, a Jacobite uprising led by the Earl of Mar attempted to overthrow the monarchy. King George I, who was the first British monarch from the House of Hanover, had ascended to the throne, succeeding Anne, Queen of Great Britain, and she was the last of the House of Stuarts. 
to have ruled okay. because we all know how this story ends. <laughs> we do indeed. We all know how the story ends. Um, the Jacobites were attempting to replace George I with James Francis Edward Stuart, who was nicknamed the Old Pretender. The uprising was unsuccessful, however, and most of the Jacobites involved were executed for treason. So, everybody thinks that there was just, like, kind of one major Jacobite uprising, which is the one I'm going to be talking about, but actually it's believed that there might have been up to four. Really? That are just, yeah, but are just not really known about because they're not as famous and not yeah. as, like, sort of final <laughs> as, as yeah. Culloden was. Um, so, yeah, so th- there was actually a lot of Jacobite action <laughs> throughout, the, <laughs> throughout the years prior to 1745. But it would be James's son, Charles, however, that would play a major role in the uprising of 1745, ending with the Battle of Culloden on the 16th of April, 1746. This is the story of the Battle of Culloden. So it is the winter of 1745 and the Jacobite uprising is in trouble. The Jacobite army has been forced to retreat despite having recently taken Derby in England. However, the dual forces of the Duke of Cumberland and Field Marshal George Wade are now converging upon them and there's a bounty of £30,000 on Bonnie Prince Charlie's head. Now, £30,000 in 1745 money is a lot of money by their standards. A lot of so money. So I found, I found a wee currency converter. Ooh. And apparently... £30,000 in 1745 money is approximately £3.5 million in today's. That's tuppence. That's tuppence. Yeah. <laughs> so well, if somebody was going to deliver Bonnie Prince Charlie's head to the king, they were going to make themselves a really rich person. So they're not doing great at this point. The Jacobite army would reach Glasgow on Christmas Day, 1745, because everything happens on Christmas Day. (laughs) Everything happens on Christmas Day. Oh, God, we love a link. And on the 17th of January, 1746, they defeat the British at the Battle of Falkirk Muir. However, despite their successes, the British army continued to pursue them. By now, the British army has descended upon Edinburgh, leading the Jacobite army to continue on northwards to the Highlands, heading in the direction of Inverness. Exhausted, running low on supplies and most likely demoralised, the approximate 6,000 men marched forth with Charles at the helm. A new base was formed in Inverness. So when I was reading about this, I didn't actually realise that the Jacobite army had made it as far as like northern England, which which is one of I think again is what well, I'll get to a point that I'm going to make later on. But that's one of the things of it becoming so mythical, myth-like, and how people talk about it is that you don't pe- people don't realise that actually there was a point when they were doing pretty well <laughs> in terms of trying to reach London. Meanwhile, the British army led by the Duke of Cumberland marched from Aberdeen, closing in on the Jacobite army. So another fun fact for you. The 15th of April, 1746, the eve of the Battle of Culloden, was actually the Duke of Cumberland's 25th birthday. Mm. 
He reportedly, oh, I know, happy birthday. He reportedly gave his soldiers extra rations and drink in celebration. That's nice of him. That's nice of him. Also, right, I'm 25, right? And this guy was about to lead an army into battle. <laughs> yeah, they did things differently in the olden days. They did things differently, but also um, they, oh, they would all probably die at like 42. So he was middle-aged by then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he was well in his life by then. <laughs> oh, God. So yeah, so they're having a wee party up in the Highlands. So what should the Jacobite army do? Uh, don't know. Yeah, that's that's kind of what they were doing as well, to be honest. So you, you, yeah. you give a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so do they pitch a battle with the British, but they're in a severely weakened state and possibly risk losing, most likely with a heavy loss of life. Eventually, they agree on a plan. A surprise night attack on the British soldiers. So it's brilliant, this plan. The sleeping British troops would be no match for the Jacobites when caught unawares. They begin their march to the British encampment. Their exhaustion, however, would be the downfall. Progress to the British camp proved slow and they were forced to turn back. Upon reaching Culloden, a report arrived detailing the advancing government troops. So at this point, it looks like they're going to have to fight there's no time to try and retreat. Mm -hmm. Both sides took their positions and the papers of the Jacobite army began to play. At approximately 1pm, the Jacobites opened fire with the government artillery responding. Historically, it had been suggested that hundreds of Jacobites were killed at this point. However, Modern statistical analysis of distance between forces and weapons used suggests there may have only been between 20 and 30 casualties at this point. Right. Yeah. Because of the types of guns they were using. It's not like they were using automatic rifles. So. That's true. That's so it was, true. it was time consuming to load it and fire a gun. It takes 25 minutes to reload a gun. Thank you for that. Is that, do you know that from experience? That's, uh, no, but from a past life. <laughs> from a past life? Yeah, Good I'm fact. harking back. Yeah. Yeah, love it. So shortly after 1pm, Charles gives the order for the Jacobites to advance. Whilst trying to navigate the treacherous terrain, the right flank of the Jacobite lines begin to inadvertently change positions, largely to avoid the incoming government fire. The five advancing Jacobite regiments eventually become entangled as one and three of the five lose their commanding officers. The Jacobite left flank, however, moved slower, hampered by the boggy ground of the moor. As they moved forward, the men were moving through rain, smoke and gunfire. And this was on top of the already problematic conditions underfoot. So the way Culloden Moor is, so I believe, I've never been there. Would like to go though. I have. You have? Fantastic. Have. It's very, I believe it's very flat and open. So basically the Jacobite army were completely exposed to any form of attack because they had nowhere to go and they were effectively sinking into the ground as they were trying to move across it because it is marshy, marshy land. At this point, casualties begin to increase, including the groom that held Charles Edward Stuart's horse. 
And the man that was holding, or that was like in charge of holding uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie's horse was allegedly decapitated. Not, not good. Grim. Grim. That's a good word for this story. (laughs) With the Jacobite command now reluctant to give orders, perhaps coming to the realisation that the battle was going to end in a bloodbath, it is reported that it was the men of Clan Macintosh that proceeded towards the army in a Highland charge. So fun fact, the Highland Charge was a Scottish battle tactic, one of its key aims being to install fear in the opposite side. The Jacobites would face their enemy, bang on their shields using their broadswords while shouting either their clan mottos or cries of battle. They'd run through the incoming musket fire, discharge their own firearms, giving them the advantage of being clouded in smoke. So in a lot of, like dramatizations of Culloden, particularly in Outlander, there's always these images of like the Scots running in their shirts and kilts through like smoke. And it, that's not entirely untrue because that was kind of the idea behind it is that they would emerge from this cloud of smoke and would have an element of surprise yeah. behind it. So it's not completely untrue. And in regards to the Jacobites and their own firearms, a major misconception surrounding Culloden was that it was a case of swords versus guns, which it wasn't at all. And I will get to that point. Okay, okay. (laughs) Despite the charge, in this instance, the government troops were prepared for the oncoming Jacobite charge. They deployed a new bayonet tactic, where the soldier Uh would strike those oncoming from the right as opposed to straight of he- straight ahead. Nothing gives me more, makes me more anxious than thinking about bayonets. See, even when you see a gun with a bayonet in a museum, it, it's, it just, it gives me the creeps. <laughs> they were a nasty weapon. Knowing the cause was doomed, Bonnie Prince Charlie was convinced to make his escape and the relentless attack by the Redcoats left the Jacobite army in tatters. They had no choice but to make their retreat. The estimated number of Jacobite men either killed or wounded at Culloden is between 1,300 and 2,000. Several sources report varying numbers and the exact number is reportedly still unknown to this day. In comparison, government troops lost only 50 men and approximately 300 were wounded. Many of the Jacobite deaths actually occurred after the battle, as many were captured and executed. In its entirety, the Battle of Culloden, the bloody and relentless deciding fight of the Jacobite cause, took less than an hour. Really? Wow, that's... Yep. No time at all. No, a a lot of reports that I read, historians suggest that it might have between... The historians suggest it might have been between 40 and 50 minutes. Really? Yeah. And in that time, thousands in the Jacobite army died. That was how brutal it was. I'm now going to talk a wee bit about what happened after Culloden. Because this is where quite a lot of where the myths come from, or the sort of uh, twisted tellings of history is... What, ha- what happened after the battle. Okay. 
So, Bonnie Prince Charlie fled to the western coast of Scotland, eventually making his escape to France in the September of 1746. His escape is popularised in The Sky Boat Song, a Jacobite lament written in the late 19th century. So, yes. I don't think I could have told you that that was about Bonnie Prince Charlie. Really? Uh, well, I've maybe just never thought about it. I've maybe... I mean, that's fair. I think, uh, I mean, I don't really know the song off my heart, but there is a line in the chorus, which I believe is carry the, carry the boy that's born to be king over the sea to sky. So that's who it's that in reference to. Yeah. But I mean, fair enough. And also there are varying versions of the Skyboat song, not all necessarily about Bonnie Prince Charlie, but... That's what it was originally written as. So, earlier on, we were talking about people in Scottish history that you'd like to speak to, right? Mine's would be Bonnie Prince Charlie. Because the... uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie as a person in his, like, sort of historical narrative is quite intriguing. Because a lot... So, a lot of... The stuff that's written about him, uh, it's, he, he's depicted as someone who basically made all these men die for him and then ran away last minute. But there's reports that actually he was going to follow the men into battle once he realised that they were losing at Culloden and he was t- basically convinced by Jacobite commanders to, to get out because <laughs> he was going to get executed if caught. Um, but... Particularly in Outlander, if anyone's ever watched it, season two. So he's not depicted as a particularly nice person. And another thing is that... So Culloden's actually one of those sliding doors moments. There was actually an opportunity for the Jacobite army to retreat to Inverness. But the decision taken was to fight on Culloden Moor. So I would like to ask... Bonnie Prince Charlie. Why? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because it wasn't... It could have gone the other way. They could have retreated to Inverness, recouped, restocked their weapons, and then pitched a battle somewhere else. But the snap decision was taken to fight at Culloden. So I just... I would like to... I'd just be like... Why, why did you think that was a good idea <laughs> to do that? Yeah. Just, just, you know. So that's my answer to, my que- to that question from earlier. So yeah, yeah Thank you. good answer. So Culloden, despite being a major event in British history, fun fact, it's being the last pitched battle on British soil. I'll have you know. Oh. Yeah. It has become somewhat mythical in its varying accounts, as happens throughout history. So generally the pattern is fact becomes myth and myth becomes legend, which is how we end up not knowing if things were real or not. We know that Culloden was real and that it happened and it was devastating in terms of the loss of life and the way of Scottish life until then. But it's been twisted into so many narratives down the line that all of us tend to believe mythical versions of it or slightly retold versions as opposed to the one that really happened and also we ain't taught our history at school <laughs> no so how are we to know oh uh, so I the event oh tell stuff. me about it 
tell me about it. It's so important that we know where we come from and what happened, but we just we're just not taught it, and it's ridiculous. So the event is often romanticised as a great, unfair battle where the Redcoats mercilessly gunned down unprepared and ill-equipped Jacobite soldiers. This isn't entirely true. At Culloden, the Jacobite army was actually organised along regimental lines and they were drilled using a mix of British and French tactics. They also had artillery at their disposal. So that's one of the myths is that the Jacobites were kind of like an amateur quote-unquote army and that they only had their swords. They didn't have any guns or anything like that. That's untrue. (laughs) They actually were drilled and organised as the government army was and had artillery at their disposal. Mm. But it's it's become a historical narrative is that 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 wasn't the case, that actually they were innocent Highlanders fighting for their land and were gunned down by the British. But that's that's not how <laughs> that's not really how it played out. They were a legit army. A presented narrative is often the victory of modern Britain over the somewhat backwards, quote-unquote, Scotland. This is largely where the myths surrounding Culloden stem from. So it's often presented that Scotland was stuck in the Dark Ages, whereas England and lowland Scotland was, like, flourishing in the... What surprise. What a surprise. So that's also another narrative that was given to Culloden, largely by the British, in that it, they were fighting to bring Scotland into the modern era, which <laughs> is one way of looking at it. Um, mm. Yeah. So both sides of the story have been twisted by each side throughout history, depending on which narrative that they wished to present. It also wasn't just Highland clansmen that participated in the battle, which is be- mostly believed, as many volunteers were from the lowlands, including Glasgow and Edinburgh and Stirling and South, as well as Irish and Scottish soldiers that were in the French service, because they got involved as well, apparently, and a handful of English volunteers. Oh. Yeah, some English were on the Scottish side. <laughs> Fair play. That's yeah. nice. They have, they have guts. So another myth often associated with Culloden is that it marked the death of Scottish nationalism. And whilst not strictly true, it did mark the final nail in the coffin for the Scottish clan system. A common misconception around the Battle of Culloden is that after the uprising, the British effectively decimated the Highland way of life. And although not entirely untrue, it was far more systematic in its dismantlement. So for anybody that doesn't know... Scottish clans were effectively extended networks of families, be it by blood, marriage, or by perceived kinship, all of whom pledged fealty to a specific chief or chieftain. Chiefs can be perceived as similar to both kings and judges, as they held the most power over the respective clans and clan members. I will say for Outlander, one of the things it does do really well is actually depict the clan system and how it worked in its first season. Because... Uh, they did a pretty good job of trying to explain how it worked and how all these families were interconnected and stuff like that and how one became part of a clan because it wasn't always because you weren't always born into it so fun fact 
The word clan is actually derived from its Gaelic equivalent, and it literally means children. Oh, I, don't I didn't I know that. that. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I didn't know that. So, but I suppose like living in Scotland, clan to us is just a word that means like exactly it's your clan. It's not like it's your clan. You never think about <laughs> what that word actually means. Exactly. So it's really interesting, but also it shows how. That word used to have meaning in our own language, but to us, it's just there now. It's yeah. just part of the All English language. Yeah. Yeah. So prior to the uprising, there had been methodical tactics deployed to disband the clan's way of life. Such a tactic included requiring clan chiefs to be resident in Edinburgh, whilst their heirs were being educated in the English-speaking lowlands. This was largely being used to weaken and ultimately eliminate the speaking of Gaelic. So one of the big things that people think about post-Culloden is that the speaking of Gaelic was banned outright. And again, there is some truth in that, and I will get to that, but there was more to it than just the bad British banning the Scottish language. It was far more systematic and thought out as to how they were going to try and get rid of it. It wasn't just a blanket ban. It was post-Culloden, however, that brought the most damage to the clan system. The Heritable Jurisdictions Act of 1746 transferred the power clan chiefs had to hold courts to the justiciary and, all, and their ownership of land all reverted to the crown. This was a major loss of power for the chiefs as their judicial rights had given them a large amount of control over their tenants. There was then the Dress Act of 1746, which made the wearing of Highland dress, including tartans from clans and the kilt, illegal in Scotland. Many clans had their own individual tartans, and this was an attempt to bring those that supported the Jacobite cause under control. Can you imagine if you couldn't get to wear your kilt, Chris? I'd be fuming. You would be fuming. That's this a bit rude. Kilts yeah. are good. I love a kilt. <laughs> Tartan would eventually make a major resurgence in the 19th century, however, it being popularised in both literary and artistic works during the Romantic movement. So that's when you saw lots of people dressed in Tartan standing on a highland moor with a stag in the background. All those kinds of paintings. <laughs> you know the ones I'm yeah. talking about. Classic, yeah. The Act of Proscription 1746 encompassed both the Dress Act and the Disarming Act. The banning of Highland dress, making certain Scottish customs, including the playing of bagpipes and the speaking of Gaelic illegal, and criminalising the right to possess any form of weapon was seen as a way to curtail Jacobitism in Scotland. However, this, coupled with the Highland clearances, further wounded both the clan chiefs and the use of Scottish Gaelic. Highland clearances were basically people were kicked out their houses so they could place cheviot sheep <laughs> to make money. Great. Um, played a massive part in why Gaelic effectively for a time became a dead language because all of the Gaelic speakers from the Highlands were told to move abroad. Yeah. So they either came down to the lowlands where English was the first language or they were emigrating abroad to like the colonies and stuff because they, they had nowhere else to go. Um, 
By the second phase of the clearances, the clan chiefs no longer owned Highland estates and their tenants were often encouraged to emigrate to either Canada or Australia. So actually, the Highland clearances played a big part in the first wave of Scottish emigration, particularly to America. Did you know? Oh, I always just assume that that's... Well, no, I suppose I've always thought about it from the Irish perspective of people moving during the famine yeah, to America. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know when I think Scotland, Scottish people did that. So, yeah, that's cool. Didn't know that. Yeah. And I'm assuming um, this is also how my family came to be down here because we were um, Highlanders. The McLeishes yeah. were part of the McPherson clan, which is Highland. Um, and the McPherson's had quite a large chunk of the Highlands, actually. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I reckon we probably came down here because of because of that. Yeah, possibly. It was something We were that... sheep herders. <laughs> so we were probably we were sheep herders. So we were probably like, Oh, get rid of everyone to put sheep in. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> but I mean, who knows? Oh, that's so good. Um yeah, the Highland clearances were a bad time. Go and have a read about it, kids. <laughs> learn a bit learn a bit of darkish Scottish history. It wasn't a fun time for anybody. No. So, Culloden, it wasn't, this terrible, terrible battle happened on the land there, right? So, it being a place of death and despair, Culloden has its fair share of ghost stories. Of course! You knew I had to get a ghost in there somewhere. Yeah. You knew it had to happen. It is told that ghosts return to the site on the date of the battle each year, still giving their battle cries and clashing their swords. Not going to lie, would be a little bit unnerved if I heard a big Highlander shouting in Gaelic at me from across a moor. That would does scare yeah. me. Yep. Yeah, I think it would do the job. Yeah, especially if you can't see where it's coming from. That would be even more scary. Yeah. Um, there has also been reports of ghosts seen near the graves of the fallen, including a tartan-clad soldier injured on the ground. A ghost is also purported to wander around muttering the word defeated under their breath accompanied by the sound of fighting in the distance. Strangely, though, there are reports that birds do not sing over the exact site of the battle. Ooh. Yeah, which is a really bizarre one. Um, Giving the moor a serene, if slightly eerie, silence. Mm. So I, I can imagine it being a creepy old place if there's not a lot of people about. Yeah. Um, so that is the bloody battle of Culloden and the death of the Scottish clans. Love it. Thank I you very much. I don't think I knew a lot of that. Because I knew a bit about the Battle of Culloden, but then I think I was probably one of the people of the opinion that it was to do with... Uh, that the Scottish were um, kind of backwards and didn't yeah. have guns and all that stuff. Yeah, um, I think... That is a major misconception about it because, but again, that's kind of what happens when history becomes myth, and mm-hmm. because we are probably thinking of versions that uh, that people have told throughout the years, and that's what we just think of it as now. Yeah. Um, also, I think a lot of people get the Jacobite uprising and the Scottish Wars of Independence confused. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Because again, we're not taught it, I say again. (laughs) We're not taught what happened in our history in our schools, which is ridiculous. 
But I think another thing with Culloden is a lot of people think that because it ended kind of the Highland way of life, which it did, and again, I say it was far more planned out by the British than just stopping everything. But I think a lot of people think it was to do with Scottish nationalism and a lot to do with how Scotland wanted to run as a country. And that's not entirely true. And to put it in like, it's a lot more complicated than what I'm about to say, but it is basest, basest, basest form. The Jacobite uprising was effectively trading one king for another. That's what right. it was about. Yeah. That's what it was about. And again, I say it's so much more complicated than just that. But if you're looking at it in its simplest form without all the politics and without all the fighting, that's what it was about. It really didn't have anything to do with kind of how and I'm not saying that Highlanders weren't treated badly by the British I'm not saying that anything like that at all because I don't know much about that side of history yeah but that's not what the Jacobite uprising was about it was about trying to get the Stuarts back on the throne that that was like kind of like it and I think one of the things where because obviously it's something like Outlander which is like a worldwide famous TV show. And also it's one of the few TV shows that depicts Scottish history, full stop. Yeah. <laughs> there's not many on them. If I think a lot of people, if they take that at face value, because obviously it features it's fictional characters in amongst a real life event... A lot of people take that as truth and a lot because there is a narrative twisted that it is the evil red coats against like the romantic Scottish Highlanders. A lot that's another narrative that's given to the Jacobite uprising and why it happened. But that's in a fictional context. It is, at its mm-hmm. basis level, it was just that they wanted another king on the throne. So yeah. but that's I, good and to again, know. I think I think a lot of it does come down to the fact that we don't know <laughs> what happened in our past, which is terrible. Yeah, we don't get taught Scottish history. If we were told anything remotely, um, we get taught UK history and we get taught mm-hmm. to what, what I feel is English history. I, I agree, I agree. Or yeah. British history, but then I don't particularly relate to the term British. Yes, we're attached, mm-hmm. but I don't think... If somebody from abroad says British, they're not thinking of the UK, they're thinking of England. Thinking about, well, you think of the amount of times that people have said, oh, that person has a British accent, and what they mean is they have an English accent. Yeah, and even then, within England, there's so many regions and different exactly. types of accent. To a lot of the world, a British accent is You're an RP, yeah. London, kind of standard English accent. Yeah, exactly. But so... It does my absolute nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Or as many times, I think as well, because I think also the thing about Scottish history in the mainstream is that everyone kind of, a little bit like what happened post Culloden, everybody sort of makes our history a myth or makes it kind of a legend or it has like a fairy tale like quality to it, if you get what I mean. Do you think we're to blame for that because we've got a unicorn as our national animal? <laughs> hey, unicorns are badass. Don't diss the unicorns. <laughs> True. Also, they're only mythical if you don't uh, look hard enough. 
Uh, exactly. They're all knocking about up here. Hello. Yeah. I've seen at least five today. Today? Just, ju today, just grazing in my garden. You know, just just hanging about. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, we are possibly are partially to blame to that because we we don't really know what happened ourselves. But also I think not a lot... There's not... There hasn't been dramatisations of Scottish history. Really. And whether yeah. that be play, films, and also plays and television and film, more so TV and film, feed continually feed into the untrue version of events. And you only yeah. have to look at friggin' Braveheart to to prove mm -hmm. that. That everybody thinks that we were all painted in blue paint running about like savages, which was not the case, most likely. No. <laughs> yeah. So there I think there's so little done where it's just like a legit telling of Scottish history, which is why it ends up becoming so messy and so myth-like in its tellings is because yeah because it makes it makes for a good a lot of it makes for a good story it's slightly if it taking it slightly out of context and like fictionalizing it but that also messes it up yeah there's also been a, a history of scottish people being painted like barbarians and mm -hmm. um there has been a history of propaganda created by English Parliament and English uh, rule mm -hmm. back in the day. I'm not talking now, but like, yeah. I mean, maybe. Well, um, well. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, to purposely make the world believe that Scotland is filled with just savages. Exactly. And it's, it's not the case. It's just that's how we've been painted. And mm -hmm. I think it was, it was a way of making the world turn against Scotland as a nation. But... Um, yeah, I won't get too much into it because I don't want to turn racist. <laughs> I don't want to sound racist. I don't. I'm not racist against English people at all. No. But there is a history of Scotland being painted in a poor light by England. Exactly. And that's just I a fact. That is just a fact. Yeah, but no, you are stating a fact because that's where narratives come from, and a lot of the propaganda came out after Culloden. Yeah. That's what. Yeah. That's that's why tartan and kilts were banned that's why people couldn't play the bagpipes that's why certain customs were decimated was because they painted the idea that those that don't follow what the lowlanders doing are savages that's yeah. what that's what they wanted to depict and that they that they were going out there to bring them into modern society and to bring them into the now but perhaps not talking about the means in which they were going to do that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you get what I mean. But yeah. that's but that's what happens throughout history is that each side will paint it however and I mean we're just as bad throughout history painting it as all these innocent, unprepared Highlanders like being gunned down yeah. by the British when actually they were an incredibly organized army. They were just demoralized, exhausted. And Culloden probably should never have happened, really. Yeah. It's it's something that, by the sounds of it, was a last ditch attempt, and the just perhaps maybe the wrong decision was just made in that instance, basically. Bonnie Prince Charlie. I know, right? God's sake, coming over from here, gathering up all our men. 
and send them in a bloodbath. Come on. Honestly. You should have just gone to Inverness. It's lovely. Exactly. I've only I've never been to Inverness properly. I made we made a stop in Inverness when I was on tour with an opera group to pick up our programmes, but that was it. <laughs> well, my cousins growing up lived in Tain, which is slightly further up, so we would kind of go to Inverness quite a bit. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. Um and but, that's how I came to be at Culloden. No, I'd really, really like to visit Culloden now. Yeah. When that's when that happens, um it's a bit of a pain to get to though if you don't drive, but here we are. True. Um Road trip. Road trip. A wee bit gothic road trip. <gasps> that's such a good idea. We could do a live episode in the moor. Well, that's all I have to say on that matter. This was quite this is quite a hist- a history-ish kind of episode. It is actually. It's turned out inadvertently that way. But that's yeah. because I suppose part of our reason for doing this was to teach people about Scottish history. Yeah. So they get a hell of a lot of it today. <laughs> yeah, and I like it. I like it. Oh. As always, the usual chit chat. Like us on Instagram and the Facebook. We're now on YouTube. We are a wee bit gothic on YouTube. The, all our existing episodes are now up there and the most recent episodes will go up and we're hoping to put the images that we would normally put on Instagram in amongst the videos so that as you listen, you might see the reference images, which will be nice for everybody. I just have to actually do it. And <laughs> um, yes, if you if you liked us, do share, subscribe like everything give us comments on itunes all those kinds of businesses um so yeah thank you very much thank you very much and also on that point i recently saw that we had a lovely new review on a apple podcast so thank you very much we do so thank you very much to that human who posted that that was that made my day reading that (laughs) well i'll be off to have a look at that myself thank you (laughs) um but until next time was that gothic a wee bit Yeah, look how short my arms look. They look tiny. Oh my god, that's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that just took me by surprise. That's so weird.